0: to Crosspoint Church's Weekly Sermon Audio from Lead Pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Well, we're in 1 Corinthians 9 today, we're going to handle the first 18 verses, and uh, just to catch you up on where we are, if you're visiting with us for the first time today, we're in the middle of a sermon, or of of a series of sermons, all the way through Paul's New Testament letter to the Corinthians. And uh, we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians 9 today, and really today is a little bit of a continuation of last week. Remember how I said last week that chapters 8, 9, and 10 sort of go together? And what's happening here is Paul is writing a letter back to a church in the city of Corinth that he planted about two or three years before this letter. And this church was comprised of a tremendously gifted and talented group of people, that were in this very strategic place of Corinth that was uh... not quite a port city but it was a place of much commerce and trade and many talented people many intellectual intellectually uh... driven people and uh, people with many means and ability to spread the gospel found themselves in Corinth but uh, uh, as is often the times with talent and giftedness and wealth comes selfishness and sin and Um, and carnality and that was certainly the case in Corinth and so Paul is then writing back to them trying to untangle some problems in the Corinthian church and we've detailed those problems for the past 20 weeks or so and where we find ourselves now in chapters 8, 9, and 10 is that there was this sort of dispute if you remember from last week between these stronger Christians so to speak and these weaker Christians and by stronger and weaker I'm not talking about bench press (laughs) I'm talking about in this one particular sense these stronger Christians understood that they were free in Christ really to eat whatever they wanted to eat. In this case, it was food offered to idols, which is not so much of a problem for us in our day, but they understood that there are no such thing as idols, and so they were free to eat this meat, whereas the weaker Christians who maybe had just more recently become Christians out of that sort of pagan demon meat culture were sort of more susceptible to wondering and being confused by that, and so Paul is affirming the right of these stronger Christians to be free in Christ and actually eat this meat but he's saying there's actually something stronger at play here and that is the principle of you preferring the walk of your brother or sister over your own freedom in Christ and so he's saying to them yeah you're free to do this but it's probably not the most helpful thing for the building up of the body of Christ and so prefer your brother over your own freedom in Christ and here's what chapter 9 is then chapter 9 is a case study where Paul then gives a personal example of how he himself is laying down a personal right for the betterment of the gospel. And that's what, that's what, uh, that's what chapter 9 is about. So here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're just going to burrow down into these 18 verses. A lot of times I have a bunch of points. Uh, today I really only have two, and we're going to handle those at the end. But I think that sort of the meat... And my hope is that the Holy Spirit will really make application for our hearts just even as we're working through these 18 verses. So instead of reading the text and then going back through, I'm just going to start and stop, start and stop. And so we're just going to dig down into this. We're going to cut up little pieces of the steak and chew for a while. And, um, and like cows, we're going to swallow it and digest it and bring it back up and swallow it again. Nice word picture for you. Sorry about that. All right, so let me, let me pray and ask the Lord to help us understand this text. Oh Lord, thank you for the scriptures, which is your completely divine and completely true self-revelation to us. We believe that it is sufficient for us, that it tells us everything that we need to know for life and godliness and salvation. But I pray that we would come to it with deep humility today. Lord, as is my prayer every Sunday, I pray two things. I pray for the Christians in this room, that you would stir our affections for Jesus, that today would not be so much a few points about how to live better, but that you would, through your Holy Spirit, work through this word to compel us to more affection for Jesus. And Lord, I pray for people in this room who are not yet Christians, people who have not yet trusted alone in what Jesus has done on the cross for them as a mediator between a holy God and their sinful lives. I pray, Lord, that even as we're talking about these things that Paul is critiquing the Corinthians on, that the gospel would become real and that scales would fall from people's eyes and that they would see Jesus and trust in him. I pray these things for your glory. And the joy of your people, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's work our way through, starting in verse 1. Paul gives a case study here of his right and the other apostles' rights to be compensated for their ministry. And all along, he's basically building a case saying that he himself is actually denying this right Because in this particular instance, it would be better for the Corinthians if he didn't exercise his right to be paid by them for the advance of the gospel. So let's go in verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Okay, so let's stop there and just handle a couple little issues, so that even if this isn't the main issue, it's just there's just good teaching in this. What is an apostle, by the way? An apostle is uh, one of the twelve disciples that Jesus gave special authority to in uh, the New Testament, to actually write the New Testament, and it also would include a couple of Jesus's brothers. So James, who wrote the book of James, and Jude, who wrote the short New Testament letter that we know of as Jude, who are Jesus's half-brothers, so Mary and Joseph, after Jesus, they had another couple children, and so they're Jesus's half-brothers, James and Jude, plus the 12 disciples, minus Judas, who bowed out there at the end, but then plus Matthias, who gets chosen in the in the beginning chapters of Acts. They are these 12, 13, 14 apostles that have a special authority. There's a There's a real sort of uh, equivalent, sort of between the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles. And these men especially had special authority in the early church because they were closest to Jesus during his earthly ministry, and they were also witnesses, all of them, to his resurrection. Now Paul is not one of those original twelve, and he's not a half-brother of Jesus like James and Judar, but in Acts chapter 9, we read about Paul's conversion experience where Jesus comes back down from the right hand of Father of the Father and makes a personal appearance to Jesus, So the, I mean, to Paul. So the resurrected Jesus comes back down, knocks Paul off of a horse, slaps him around a little bit, tells him, makes him go blind for a couple days, tells him to stop persecuting him and his people, and then makes him into one of his apostles. And so Paul is claiming his sort of apostolic authority by his one-on-one sort of cage fight with Jesus that he lost badly. And so, so Paul is an apostle because he has seen the resurrected Jesus and Jesus has instructed him to take the gospel to the Roman Empire. So an apostle is... So, so let's just... There are no more apostles, okay? They're dead, all of them. They've all died, all right? So nobody has the same authority that Peter, James, John, and the others, and Paul has. So if there's somebody that is sort of on TV preaching and they're calling themselves an apostle, don't walk, run far away from them because they are not. Now they may have a ministry that is apostolic in its nature, meaning that they're taking the gospel to uh, unreached areas or they're starting new ministry. Now, that is a, a sort of apostolic working out of a ministry gift, but there is no office of apostle, capital A, with the same authority that these men had. All right? Just a little, just a little, little tidbit there because um, we can be fleeced by wolves in our day. So Paul is claiming that he's an apostle, and he's writing that, and that, and he's appealing to the Corinthians of the good fruit that he has worked in them as a seal of his apostleship. Verse 3, so he's building an argument here. Verse 3, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not, meaning the apostles, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, Cephas is another name for the apostle Peter. So he's saying that these men are able to take along their wives with him on their ministry ventures as the, as the other brothers do and don't, don't we have that right? Verse 6, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? And so he's saying you've got these workers, and then he kind of uses an agricultural analogy, and he's saying certainly a farmer or certainly somebody who has livestock is going to sell some cattle or milk the goats or whatever, and they're going to have some of the fruit of that flock or of that crop to help make their own living, to help their own sustenance. And so he's drawing the analogy out here. Paul is beginning to build the argument by appealing to the fact that preachers of the gospel are entitled to financial support from the church. And he'll draw that out a little bit later here in verse 8, although I don't think that's the thrust of this text, and we'll see that here in just a moment. Verse 8, do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? So now he goes from just appealing towards their everyday life to where farmers eat some of their own crops and uh, you know, cow, cattle ranchers drink some of their own milk of their own cattle. Now he refers back to the Old Testament. Does not the law, and he's referring now to a verse in Deuteronomy, say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow and hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, don't, do not, we even more. And so what Paul is saying here is that, look, I'm gonna use this analogy from the Old Testament. Moses said to the nation of Israel, as a sort of analogy for paying their priests, he says, don't put a muzzle on the ox. And so think of this picture. You've got this ox who's got this plow hooked to his back, who is plowing this field. And then when that ox maybe rests overnight, you've got this muzzle on this ox so that he can't eat some of the, some of the field or crop that he is, he is, in fact, tilling and plowing. Or threshing, or whatever oxes do. And so what he's saying is, is that here these preachers are just oxes. That's all they are. I'm just an ox. Just a, a beast of ignorance. And just let this thing work. And you would not imagine if you were a farmer putting a muzzle on the snout of your horse or your, your ox so that that ox couldn't eat as he produces and helps you harvest this plow. And so he's using the same analogy. He's then saying that that if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we also reap from you? So here's the point that Paul is making. And again, this is the point he's making about something bigger than just compensation for preachers. He's making this point that preachers of the gospel should be enabled by the church to give themselves to the work of the Lord without being hindered. Okay, Now, I think sometimes this particular verse is used way out of context. I think Paul's making a bigger point, and we'll come back to it here in just a second. Verse 12, halfway through verse 12, 12b. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. But listen to this sentence now. But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And So Paul is saying... Here's the argument that he's building. Follow this now. It's a pretty simple uh, logic, but if this is the first time you're kind of coming to this text, you know, it might be hard for you to grasp. Paul is saying that these apostles are worthy of making their living off of the gospel. And he's saying that I also am one of these apostles. And so I am am worthy. I am am able. You You should grant me this right to where I should make my living off of the gospel now let's stop there and just put a little plug in here just for the good of the church even though again i don't think this is the thrust of the text that it is good and i think this has been tremendously abused in the american church it is good for churches to compensate their pastors fairly how do we do that here at crosspoint just for your knowledge again this is not the thrust of the passage but how do we do that here at crosspoint the salaries of the people that work here full-time and the pastors, this is not something that, you know, Reynolds and I get back in the back room and say, <laughs> how much do we want to make today? Look, I have zero control over what you as a church pay me. That is done by some uh, regular people in the congregation that, that comprise a, f- a finance team, and that group kind of rotates in and out throughout the years, and that's led by somebody else. The point here Paul is making is that pastors are basically just farmers. They're oxen that are working for your good. And we as a church should joyfully compensate those whom the Lord has set aside for full-time vocational ministry and the preaching of the gospel in such a way. Think of it in two different rails. We should compensate them so that they have enough not to be worried about the daily necessities of life, but we should also not compensate them too much so that they, their hearts might be drawn away by putting their trust in their retirement or their standard of living. How many of you have seen a bad representation of finances by people in ministry? Turn on TBN, friends, and see the absolute despicable heresy of the prosperity gospel where very well-known preachers in our nation break the backs of poor people, promising them some sort of blessing from God if they will just give to help fuel their Learjet or their, you know, thousand-dollar suit. Friends, it is ridiculous, it is heretical, and it is, in fact, damnable. But the other side of the coin is, too, that Christians that have committed themselves to a local church should joyfully free their pastors up, I think, to be just sort of regular middle-class people if they are able to give themselves wholly to the work of the Lord. Again, so that they are not worried about whether or not they can keep the light bill on, but also that they don't have too much so that their trust might begin and their identity might be wrapped around some wealth. That is an unusual balance that not many churches can find. It's sort of one way or the other, and we are so blessed here. There's just no strife or tension along that. Friends, honestly, that's one of the reasons why uh, you need to be part of a local church and you need to help commit part of the resources that God has given you for this, for this joyful privilege to serve the gospel in this way. All right, enough of that. That's not the thrust of this passage. In verse 13, let's go. So Paul is saying here that I am giving up this right for the sake of the gospel. Why would he say that to the Corinthians? Let's keep reading in verse 13. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? He continues, he a little bit more argument here that he's building for them. So what he's saying is these priests, he's probably referring to the Jewish priests that tend to the temple, and they would get some of their food, the grain offering that we see in the Old Testament, So they get part of their compensation from their work at the temple. And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, verse 14, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Okay, so then that um, is basically what Paul is summing up his argument there that we've just talked about, that he and Barnabas are entitled to compensation from the Corinthian church for their labor among the Corinthian church But then it takes a twist here in verse 15. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. So Paul says, he takes the first 15 verses to build this right that he has, and then he says in verse 15, but with you, Corinthians, I'm actually not going to take this right. So why would Paul do that? So here's what's going on in Corinth. Because we know that in the other New Testament letters that he wrote to other New Testament cities and communities that he founded those churches, he did receive their support. So Paul is not saying here that it's sort of more chivalrous or more holy or more spiritual for a pastor to establish his right to receive a salary or his compensation from a church but then to back away from it and say, oh, no, 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 that's, that's not what I want to do. He's not, it's not just some sort of theoretical right. What he's saying here to the Corinthians is that I'm not going to receive this right from you because in this particular instance, it will be a hindrance to you. Why? Well, in the Corinth culture, there were these sort of professional orators. They were like, think of like the talking heads on MSNBC and Fox News and people that just sort of, they're like consultants. They just sort of go around making speeches and they just get paid for being rhetorical professionals. You know, just people that talk. They just just go and give speeches, and that's sort of the culture that existed in Corinth with Greek philosophy. People would just be paid to be uh, just sort of speech givers and, and theorize on different philosophies of the day. And of course, if they were compensated by particularly rich Corinthians, then they would be more willing to sort of adapt a philosophy that might be pleasing to the Corinthians like, yeah, it's okay if you are married to this woman and you just have this sort of love feast over here in this party because that's not really what matters. And so, yeah, the body is not really, you know, we're spiritual. The only thing that's really going to heaven is our soul. And so our bodies don't really matter. You can just kind of do what you want. In fact, that's the issue that was happening in the earlier chapters in 1 Corinthians 7 when we talked about all this mixed up ideas of sexual immorality, a lot of that came from these broken Greek philosophies that were being purported by these Greek speech givers, these philosophers who were being paid by the rich people to tell them what they wanted. And so Paul is saying that I'm not going to be your monkey. You are, this isn't the midwinter fair. This isn't the carnival. I don't wear a little hat with a little tambourine. You're not going to throw a quarter at me. Don't, don't do that. And boy, does that not exist in American church culture to some degree, doesn't it? Where you see preachers bowing down to certain segments of influence in the church. And so what they do is they curtail the offensive truth of the gospel because they're too scared to lay it out because it might dry up some financial resource. (laughs) And do you see how when that happens, that is death to a church. It's death to the gospel. That's why we are very slow to spend money here. That's why we care nothing about buildings. That's why we will not mortgage our future. Because I don't want to tickle the ears of rich people because I have to pay a $10 million mortgage. I don't care if you're rich or poor or black or white or from California. I don't care who you are. And it is death to the gospel when the motivation of the preacher is compromised in some way, even in a very small way. And Paul says here, Corinthians, you guys are so jacked up. You are so proud that I am going to refuse this rightful claim I have the compensation for your good so that you don't think that anything I'm saying is somehow mixed up in something where I'm trying to please some rich cat in the Corinthian church. And so so what's going on here? Should we pay our pastors fairly? Yes, but that's not the point of this passage. Paul is so absorbed with the advance of the gospel and the clarity of who Jesus is, and he wants it so badly to break through the cultural forces of the Corinthians, that he is willing to lay aside his rightful claim so that they will not confuse or obscure the truth with some compensation that he might be receiving from certain segments in the Corinthian church. Wow, wow. Oh, that that type of boldness would seize the hearts of American preachers. Oh, that that type of clarity... Oh, that that type of freedom would, would, would resound in the pulpits of America. Amen. Amen. Didn't get it from you, so I had to give it to myself. <laughs> Verse 15, but I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such Provision. Now listen to this. Second half of verse 15. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. Paul's saying, I would rather die than obscure the gospel in your eyes. I would rather die. And I, I, boy, I feel this way. I, I, not, certainly not to the depth maybe that Paul, this... This, this father of the early church in so many ways, but I, I would rather, if there's anything in my life that is a, somehow obscuring the gospel, well, I feel this weight. I would, ra- I would rather just, just cease to exist than cause confusion about who Jesus is. And he says this would deprive me of my ground for boasting. That almost sounds sort of proud there. Like Paul wants to boast in his uh, sort of uh, uh, self uh, limit that he puts on himself. Like he's trying to use this, but really that's not what he's saying. He's saying that, that I would rather die than be in a situation where I cannot freely boast in Christ alone, I would rather not even live than have any cloud in my heart to think that I'm doing what I'm doing for anything other than the glory of the cross. Verse 16, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. I think the NIV version says this a little bit clearer than the ES version that I like so much. It says something to the effect of, for when I preach, the gospel I cannot boast, for I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. In other words, so Paul is saying that, look, the fact that I'm doing this, this way, laying down my rights, is not any reason for you to pat me on the back or for me to pat myself on the back, Paul is saying. He's saying, look, I, I'm not just doing this because I, I I think it's a good career choice. He's saying, I have to do this. I am compelled. The, the ESV version says that necessity is laid on me. The NIV says that I am compelled, the original language carries with this weight that there's just this there's this gravity sitting on his life that he is so consumed with it that ministry is not a profession for him it's not a vocation he wasn't like the sharp kid in youth group who learned how to play the guitar and you know could open his bible to Romans and he was a little bit articulate and so we just kind of shepherd this kid into being a youth pastor and then all of a sudden he finds himself pastoring a church he says no which by the way that's what happens in America all the time you just take the one kid in the youth group who shows up tell him he's called into ministry, and then 20 years later, it's a train wreck. What Paul is saying is he's saying that the gospel sat so heavy on me that it just, it just absolutely consumed my life. There was nothing else mattered, man. Nothing else mattered. It just dominated everything about me to the point where if I can't do this, I have no reason for being. Woe to me if I don't do this. And so here's the temptation and then I think hits most of us as we look at this and we say, Yeah, oh yeah, Paul. That cat was hardcore. That's good stuff. Yeah, Brad, pay attention to that, man. You're a preacher. Dance, monkey, dance, but I'm a school teacher, dog. I'm a lieutenant in the army. I'm a squad leader. I'm a staff sergeant. This isn't really talking to me. But Paul is not writing this to people just in vocational ministry. After he ends up this line of logic that he does in chapters 8, 9, and 10 in chapter 11 and verse 1, then he says, imitate me as I imitate the gospel. And actually, verse 1 of chapter 11 is really the end of his argument in chapter 10, which is... The argument through 8, 9, and 10 that we should lay down our rights, that the gospel should mean so much to us, that that who Christ is and making him known should absolutely pervade our lives and dominate everything we do, whether we are a baker or a banker or a preacher or a homeschool mom or a ditch digger or the guy who makes the little plastic that wraps around the end of your shoelace or whether you are a football coach or whether you are a salesman or, or, or whether you, whatever you are. The gospel should sit so heavy on your life that everything in the Christian's life should be oriented to making much of Jesus and less of yourself. And that's the, that's the passion and the urgency that Paul feels in this text and for the Corinthian people. And, and it's the urgency that I'm trying to communicate to us as a church, even now. How many of us think this way? I confess that I don't nearly enough. There is this seduction. It's this idol of comfort. You know, grew up in California. Had no, I wanted to be the quarterback for the San Diego Chargers. I'm 5'10", 180, slow, not a very good athlete, and don't have a good arm that dream died when I was about 13 then I just just wanted to, you know arrange my life to have a halfway decent existence went to college because it was free I got a scholarship to go to college took me to New York I was in the army and after college came here and I married a girl and After I got out of the army, was in the ministry for a while, started a church. And now this church is doing well. There's a room full of people here. Lots of people encouraging me. Brad, it's going great. Yeah, it's going great. It's just so seductive to just sort of settle down into that and say, I've got got a good church. Folks that love me. Great wife, lovely kids shift that puppy into auto control and just preach biblically correct sermons and coast. And here's the thing that kind of scares me is I could do that. I could give lip service to the gospel. And I can just I can just coast, man. But Paul is not coasting. Here he is. The gospel is sitting on him like a of bricks and it is pressing all of the flesh and selfishness. It's squeezing it out of him. How many of us think this way? I mean, we are comfortable Americans, man. Football season starts in late August. But we're just going to do what we do. Plan our trips to Disney, go to the mountains, couple weeks at the beach, get the tan, mow the yard, Little League Baseball, and we just coast. And there's no press on our lives. Friends, I'm speaking to myself, not you. Any spillover of conviction is the Holy Spirit, it's not me. I'm reading this text in my office this week, and I'm thinking, my life, I, it, it's, it just doesn't smell like this text very often. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. And again, as I said, that's not a text for preachers. We're all preachers. Paul says, imitate me. How many of us think this way? The disconnect that I honestly feel with this passage reveals how unprioritized really the gospel is for me so often. Is the gospel just an add-on for us? Is it just a means to a better end? Is it just the vehicle of advancement? Is it just something that placates our need, our deep abiding religious need, and then we move on back to more self-absorption? Friends, what is the gospel? You realize the gospel is the good news that the whole world is about God. Everything that exists points to God and His glory. The gospel is not just that one little line you see on a coffee cup that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. The gospel begins with God and His greatness and that everything in the universe points to Him and His glory. And in His wise providence, He creates mankind, Adam and Eve and everyone since. He creates us with dignity. He creates us in His image. And we rebelled against that, every one of us, from Adam and Eve, down to you and me, every person in this room and every person that has ever lived except for Jesus has rebelled against God. And our rebellion brought with it not just a minimization of our humanity, it brought spiritual death, it separated us from God. The Bible says that sin brings death and that death has spread to all mankind. The Bible says clearly that we stand opposed to God it's language that Americans don't like to hear because we sort of want platitudes. We want puppy dogs and lollipops and dandelion type of spiritual truth. But the Bible is clear. The Bible calls us before we are made new in Christ, it calls us enemies of God. We stand opposed to him. Whether we are public sinners or whether we are morally self-righteous religious people, we all have created idols in our heart and trust in them and commit treason against the Most High Creator of the entire universe who created us for His glory and our joy. And in response to our rebellion, the Bible is clear that God sends Jesus, His Son, the second person of the Trinity to live the life that we should have lived, to obey where we disobeyed, to store up righteousness for us. And then He willingly lays down His life on the cross. And on the cross, He does more than just die as an example of selflessness for us, although it was that to the 100th degree. But he dies more primarily as a substitute, as a sacrifice, as a wrath-absorbing substitute for the punishment that should have been yours and mine and all who will call upon the name of the Lord and trust in him. And Jesus satisfies the justice of God on the cross. Do you realize the gospel is not what most Americans have made it into, this sort of self-help advancement. The gospel is the terrifying, but yet beautiful news that the creator of the earth and all that is in it in the universe is righteous and holy, and that that righteousness and holiness that we have transgressed must be satisfied. And we cannot satisfy that righteousness because we've rebelled against it and it has brought death. And Jesus alone is able, as the perfect God-man, to satisfy the wrath of the Father. And do you realize that that splits all humanity into two? Those who have their sins atoned for, those whose guilt has been extinguished and those who has not, And do you realize that every person in this room and every person in the world is an immortal being? Death is not the end. Do you realize that physical death is just a passageway into eternity? And that the reality for every human being that has ever lived is either separation from God forever, which is a more unspeakable torment than we can even describe, or life forever with God? And do you realize that when you grab hold of that that is what is at stake here in our lives, and that these mere 80 years that we have been given here in the flesh are just a drop in the bucket of eternity, and that God in his wise providence has made us means by which he makes this message known and brings glory to himself, and that our lives are about so much more than these 80 years, and that this gospel that he has made us ambassadors to, do you realize how that makes everything so important. And do you realize, friends, that this gospel must be responded to? You you can't just agree with this thing, but you, you have to, as the Bible says, turn from trusting in yourself and turn in faith towards what Jesus did. And do you realize that that is all Paul is about? That is all the Bible is about? That is all the life of a Christian should be about? And so the gospel for the Christian is this hub of the wheel and everything that springs from it, whether it is your money or your marriage or your kids or your job or your thought life or whatever, is just a spoke off of this glorious hub of the only thing that matters, which is the gospel. That's why Paul says, woe to me if I don't preach it. Woe to me if I don't make my life about the advance and the clarity and the goodness of the gospel. Is that the way you view this message? Often for me it's not. Well, Let's end in verse 17. He says, for I do this of my own will, for if I do this of my own will, I have a reward, but if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. So in other words, hey, if I, if I do this freely, uh, I have a reward, but look, if I get paid by it, I've still got to do it. Verse 18, what then is my reward? Then in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as to not make full use of my right in the gospel. I think the overarching theme of this chapter is is that the gospel should smash, it should obliterate, it should squeeze all of the selfish individualism out of us. So two points quickly, just in summary, I'm not going to go through them, I'm just going to give them to you. Point number one is that the gospel should take priority over our individual rights. Do you see it like that? the gospel takes priority over our individual rights. What, what do you sort of self-consciously think is owed you? And do you realize that reveals the idolatry of your heart? Point number two, and I've made this point so I don't need to elaborate on this, is that the gospel should be the compelling motivation of our lives. The gospel should be the compelling motivation of our lives. Let me read you a quote from Mark Dever, the pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. You know that he's had a tremendous impact on me. He wrote in his book called 12 Challenges That Churches Face, and it's basically a book about the Corinthian church and the challenges that they face. And he wrote this particular chapter on 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 9, and 10 and this issue that we've been thinking about these past few weeks of selfishness and individualism and preferring our own rights over the gospel. He says this, So, brothers and sisters, do we see such examples of giving up rights for others in our own congregations? Have we experienced the blessing of giving up our rights for others? There are so many rights to reconsider in light of the urgency of the gospel. What rights are you not willing to give up for the good of others? your Sunday evenings, time with friends, a particular kind of music, your home country, your desire to do what you want whenever you want to do it, an expectation that God will make everything work out okay for your family, your health, your sleep. Perhaps the right you are called to re-examine has to do with where you live. Perhaps you are reconsidering your rights to your career, your money, certain circumstances in your marriage, your requirement of a spouse, your use of alcohol, or spending so much time traveling on weekends that your church cannot be built on you as it should be and thus opportunities to minister fall to others to those who will give themselves away for the sake of others and for the glory of God. Friends, this message is not meant to give us condemnation. If we walk away from this thinking, ooh the preacher beat me up today, I feel guilty because I'm not doing this or that. Do you realize that even there we're sort of preferring ourselves again. We're letting this dead end on us. See, now, now the end is how this made you feel. But do you realize the joy of understanding the gospel is that there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so this is the gracious goodness of God to hit our hearts, stir us, convict us, let us see more clearly what's at stake here, and then spur us on to some good work And you realize I'm not going to give you some applications. So this means these are four things you can do. How many, how many, how many? One, two, three, four. Write these things down and then go do this. Scurry on your way now, little Christian, and come back when you're done with this list. (laughs) I'm tempted to do that, man. I'm tempted to do it. So you should do this, and you should sign up for that. And we've got a sign-up sheet in the foyer, and the first 20 people that get it are gonna get a gold star. Ha! (laughs) You know, but we just we just dictate all these little lists and and then what we do is we just perpetuate our religiosity because we feel like if we do that one little thing that the preacher referred to or sign up for this ministry, then I've done it. I've laid down my rights for the gospel. (sighs) And we just perpetuate this sort of self-absorption that is pleased when we finish a list. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to pray that the Holy Spirit sits on us heavy and I'm going to trust the God of the universe more than I can trust my own leadership and motivation skills to persuade us, to compel us, to move, to make the gospel so central in our lives that it just bubbles out of us. And if you are not a believer in here today and it has become clear to you that you don't see the gospel in this way, that might be an indication that you've never truly received it. Right now, I beg of you to turn from trusting in yourself, and I beg you to see Jesus for who he really is. Not an American pop culture moralistic religious concept, but the sovereign Lord of the universe and your very creator, who right now commands you to turn from idolatry, to turn from self-righteousness, to turn from sin, and to trust in him because that is the only thing that really matters. Friends, you do that even right now. You do that by repenting and believing in Jesus. Do that even now. Even now. If you're sensing by the gracious, life-giving Holy Spirit that you are dead right now, repent and believe the gospel. Those aren't things that you have to conjure up yourself. He gives them as gifts to those whom he is saving. Turn and trust in Jesus right now. Right now. And the gospel is yours. Yours to live and give away. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Once again, I confess my default self-absorption and how so often I cling to my rights. I want to be compensated, appreciated, congratulated, adulated. And I make even the very truth of the gospel into a sort of self-serving means. Forgive me, Jesus. Reorient my life. Reorient my heart. So that I can say with Paul, woe to me if my life is not about making much of Jesus. And Lord, when the enemy wants to come and lie to me and tell me that Living that way is a sort of giving up of joy. Lord, let me realize that is a lie. That true satisfaction and joy rests only in making much of you. That The joy that I feel when I allow things to dead end on me is temporal and ultimately broken. The joy that I feel when I decrease and you increase is eternal and truly satisfying. Lord, if this has hit my brothers or sister here in in this room, the same way I do pray, God, that they would struggle with their own lives as well so that we could say with Paul, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. Lord, if there's a person in this room who it has become evident to them by your gracious, illuminating, life-giving Holy Spirit that they need Jesus, Lord, would they do that right now? Would they repent and believe? And if they need to talk to somebody, God, would they come forward to pray with one of us during this response time or stay after to talk to a brother or sister that they know to be a Christian? Lord, would you cause that to happen for your glory and our joy? And I pray it in Jesus' name, amen.